All right, Psalm 11, if you will. Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Moving right along. We're getting through the Psalms pretty quickly here. Another two years, we should be done with it. Maybe three. But, uh, but that is moving along pretty well, actually, because um, it could take a lot longer than that. So, Psalm 11. Psalm 11, a fairly brief psalm, only seven verses long. We'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll jump into the lesson. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to, to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, and that, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and an horrible tempest. This shall the portion of their cup, uh, shall be the portion of their cup. Uh, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. Uh, most of the psalms that we have are written uh, by David himself. Some of them are penned by a few other men, but the majority of the psalms that we have are penned by David. Most of those that are written by David himself uh, come from the experiences that he had gone through in his life. And this psalm is no different. It's one of the psalms that David wrote, uh, and it's written during the time when Saul was pursuing him and trying to uh, kill him. He was trying to take his life from him. And uh, in these psalms that David writes uh, out of ex- his, his personal experiences, um, it's, it's, it's within God's perfect planning of putting his scriptures together for us that he uses a young man who goes through most of the experiences that any believer could ever go through. In his life, David knew what it was to suffer loss. He knew what it was to have betrayal in his life from his friends and even some of his enemies that were against him. Uh, he knew what it was to be in danger and for God to deliver. Um, he had gone through many of the trials that uh, most believers do. So it's wonderful that we have these snapshots of David writing these psalms because he's very transparent in them. He oftentimes expresses thoughts that if we were going through a similar trial, we would express. Uh, I would hope to think that as believers, as Christians that have trusted the Lord as their Savior, that we would be faithful uh, in every trial. But the truth is, we're frail, and we are weak. And there are times that when the valleys come and the trials come, and there are very deep trials, uh, I don't know if any of us have gone through what David is going through in Psalm 11, where someone is actively pursuing, trying to end your life. Uh, but David's going through this time, and he's very transparent about some things. And I love the fact that, da- that God uses David uh, in the Psalms to write these so that we can see not only the heart of David going through these trials, but we can also see the victory that God brings in his life through his faithfulness, through his steadfastness uh, to just trust God. And uh, we see it from a very early age that David just was dependent upon God. And, and this psalm is, uh, if we were to give a title to it, 
some of the uh, commentaries I read uh, had all the same kind of uh, thought about the thrust of this particular psalm and, and regarding the steadfastness of people. And so uh, I think you could call this a psalm of the steadfast, those that uh, are just going to trust God no matter what comes along. And this is one of those psalms that if you're going through a valley or a trial, is a very encouraging psalm to read. It's one of those things that will help strengthen your faith along the way. And uh, so what, is, what has happened here is Saul has uh, gotten jealous of David. We, we know if you've read the Old Testament uh, very much and the stories of uh, Saul having a troubled spirit and they brought David in to try to calm his spirit. They, uh, David had had some successes in battle both with Goliath and then later on he begins to um, uh, lead men into war and, and people begin to chant, uh, Saul hath slain his thousands but David his tens of thousands and uh, kind of glorifying David more than the king. And Saul gets jealous and he seeks to end David's life. He begins to chase him all over the country, uh, trying to destroy David. Uh, his friends, David's friends, uh, even his closest friends, uh, recommend to him uh, that he flee to the mountains. And uh, on the surface, we think, well, that sounds good. These, these are friends that love him. They're compassionate about him. They don't want to see harm come to him. And they're telling him to flee to the mountains. And this is what has taken place as David writes Psalm 11. I want you to read that first verse with me and understand where David's coming from, what he's going to be dealing with here. He says, in the Lord, and this is in response to these friends, if you will. He says, in the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Uh, and he's, he's saying, guys, I trust God. Uh, you're telling me to go and flee in the time of trouble. And uh, I'm not going to do it. So uh, a very good, strong opening to the psalm of the steadfastness of David. Um, I would like to think in my life that my faith would be strong enough in every time of adversity to say, I just trust God. But I know my heart. And I know there are times that I get in valleys where... Uh, it seems like God is far from me. And I think all of us can relate to some of that sometimes. And our faith is shaken. And I think it's one of the great deceits of Satan. I really do. To when he cannot entice a, 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 a Christian, he can't enamor us enough with the glitz and the glamour that he makes sin look appealing as, when he can't get us that way, then he attacks us in our faith. And he gets us to question. He gets us to doubt. Uh, we see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden, if you remember. Uh, he asked Eve, you know, uh, can you eat of every tree of the garden? And she said, all the trees except the one there. And he said, uh, God has said, thou shalt eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And what was Satan's response to that? Thou shalt not what? Surely die. And he attacks her faith. He attacks, he puts question in her mind, causes her to doubt. And he appeals to her sense of wisdom and wanting to know between right and wrong and knowing what God and uh, what God knew and being like God. And he appeals to that, causes her to doubt what God had said. And uh, Satan is shrewd. He's not changed his tactics in all these years. And the sad thing is, 
We as God's people know that, and we still succumb often to His attacks, more often than we like. Even knowing what it's going to be, even being on guard for them, even being watchful of them, we still succumb to them often. This psalm can be broken into two sections. Verses 1 to 3 is David describing uh, the temptations to not trust the Lord, uh, that his friends are, are really prodding him in these areas. And we're going to take a look in a little more detail here in just a few moments at some of this. And it's, a, it's amazing to me how sometimes uh, even our dearest friends, sometimes even our family members, uh, sometimes our, our close acquaintances, uh, are those that will cause us to doubt or to have our faith weakened. And they do it in a sincere way. I don't believe they're doing it to harm us or to cause us to lose our faith. Uh, they're doing it out of a heart of uh, they don't want any harm to come to us. They don't want, um, they don't want uh, us to be destroyed by anything. And, and I think they are genuine and they're sincere. But if we're not careful, we will allow their counsel to cause our faith to be shaken. And the Bible talks about how we need to be so careful of who our friends are, uh, who our acquaintances are, who are uh, the, the people that we allow to have a voice in our life, an influence in our life. Uh, some people say, well, I know this person is not all they should be. Well, be kind to them, be friendly to them, but don't make them your counsel. Don't make them your best of friends. Uh, there are going to be uh, some trouble down the road if you do these things. The second section is verses 4 to 7. And this is where David states his argument of why he's not going to flee, uh, why he's going to be steadfast, why his courage is going to be uh, based on his faith in God. David's not courageous just because uh, he's got a strong backbone. David is courageous because he is not only trusting God now, but he has seen God faithfully deliver him in the past. And isn't it amazing, we oftentimes forget what God has done for us in the past. And I think there ought to be times of our lives where we set aside a place where we just kind of stop and think, what is it that God's done for me in my past? Uh, I was listening to a fellow a number of years ago. He was uh, training and teaching some youth workers in youth ministry. And uh, he made a statement in, in his youth department he required his um, his upper-tiered teenagers, those that were in, uh, I think it was 10th and 10th grade and above, um, they entered into a special program in the youth uh, program of the church uh, at that age. And one of the requirements he put on them was they had to have what he called a book of remembrance. And he, he made each of them keep a journal. And when God did something in their life, and they were, to, they were to spend every night before they went to bed thinking through the day, what did God do for me? And they were to write these things down. And then they had certain times throughout the year where he would require them to go back and read those things. He said it was amazing to see the faith of these young people uh, on things that were coming into their life uh, in a very... Most of us realize that those years are very transformative years, very influential years in young people's lives. He said it was amazing to see the faith that these young people began to exhibit because they could remember how God had done things in the past for them. And all that we would learn to remember these things. And so David spends verses 4 through 7 dealing with, uh, with why he's going to trust God. Why he's not going to take the advice of his friends. And so let's take a look a little bit more closely. We're going to start verse uh, number 1. Very similar 
to another story in the Old Testament, which was the story of Nehemiah, uh, who's trying to do the work that God had given him to do. And some people that claim to be his friends, some people that claim to be some acquaintances, come to him and say, there are men that are out here seeking your life. They want to kill you. They're plotting against you. Uh, you need to, you need to, you need to take precautions against that. You need to flee. You need to get out of here. And uh, if you remember, uh, Nehemiah uh, di- didn't flee, obviously. Uh, and he, he basically said this phrase. He said, "Shall such a man as I flee?" If you remember from the book of Nehemiah, when that time came, he's like, "I'm not going to flee. I'm doing what God's work is uh, given to me to do." And I'm just going to trust that God will take care of things. I'm not going to flee in the midst of this valley or this this uh, uh, this time of people coming after me and trying to. So David's very much like this. Um, he says, "In the Lord put I my trust. How say you to my soul? Flee as a bird to your mountain." He makes a very strong opening statement, and uh, he he goes ahead and mentions in verse one. This is what his friends are trying to get him to do. They're trying to get him to flee. But then he goes on verse number two. And I want us to look at uh, some of the, how, how strongly these friends come after David. Um, and again, it, it's bad enough if somebody just off, off the cuff and just kind of in passing tells us we ought to flee or take refuge in time of trial. It's bad enough if we succumb to that, that counsel. But here are some, some friends of his that are really digging deep. Notice what he says in verse 2. These these people that say, he says, how say you to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain. And this is a continuation of what they're saying. For lo, <clears throat> the wicked bend their bow. In other words, they're saying, David, this isn't something that might happen. This is imminent. That They've already made preparation. These are people that are actively coming after you, David. This isn't a threat. This is something that is actively at work now. You need to take some refuge. You need to flee. And he speaks about the fact that they've made their bow ready, uh, that they've bent their bow. They make ready their arrows upon the string. The arrow's already been knocked into the, uh, into the string of the bow. And uh, the, the aim is all that's necessary and the release. And David's life is gone. And some of this is figurative speech. But if you, if you think about it, Saul's literally bringing men of war. Men that are skilled with archery, men that are skilled with uh, spears and swords, to come after a young man, one man, and to try to kill him. Uh, I think we read the Bible sometimes, and we don't we don't let the reality of that situation sink in. What if it was you in David's shoes? A legitimate threat of a king who has all the the authority in the world to come after you and kill you and not have to be judged for it, not have to pay any ramifications for it, was after you. And he brings his men of war and he begins to chase you. I wonder what your faith would be like in something like that. I wonder what my faith would be like in something like that. We live in a day where, according to Hebrews chapter 13, the Bible says we've not yet resisted uh, to blood. In other words, we've not had to pay the price physically. But there have been people through the years, haven't there? There have been people that have paid with their lives. People that had to make a choice. Am I going to trust God in this? We see some of them in Scriptures. 
I think of the three Hebrew boys. I think of Daniel in the lion's den. They had to make a choice. I'm either going to not trust God or I'm going to just trust that He's going to deliver me. And there are those that, if you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs down through history, uh, have had to make a choice. Are they going to give their faith over? They're going to doubt that God will bring deliverance? And you say, well, Pastor, they were killed. God didn't deliver them, didn't He? Didn't He deliver them? The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> Paul found himself at one point in his life, he said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having the desire to depart. And his desire to depart was greater than his desire to stay here. But he said, it's more needful for you that I stay. And he decided he would stay because of their need. But there's going to come a time in our lives, if there has not already, where our faith will be tested. And there may be some people that will try to really just tighten those screws down. Uh, Satan knows how to pressure us. He uses enticement and he uses pressure. And one of those two usually succeeds. He says, For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string that they may privily shoot, notice this, at the upright in heart. The, the, the picture that his friends were painting it would cause pretty, pretty much anybody that I would know of to think that the only recourse they had, the only solution to the problem would be to flee. But not David. He goes on to say in verse number 3, he says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he makes reference here to the fact that there was no fairness, there was no justice, there was no law under Saul. He had destroyed all of those things. There's no righteous judging under Saul. The foundations of these things had been destroyed. And, and these people could come after David without fear of retribution, without fear of having to give an answer uh, by law to anything. David said those things have been destroyed. He said, what can the righteous do? The only place David had to turn was to God. Where would he go? What would he do? I was reading uh, Charles Spurgeon's comments on this. And he made, a, he made a thought that I thought, you know, that's a pretty good thought too. He said, there's a counter question that is kind of implied in this. And that is, uh, what cannot the righteous do if they put all of their faith in the, in the Lord? Is there anything too hard for Him? Is there not deliverance that will come as a result of that? And praying to God. Uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? Uh, the Bible teaches that greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And, and in a time like this, in a trial like this, uh, to flee would, would accomplish nothing but to stand steadfast in faith. And letting God be our defender will accomplish everything. Because whether God chose to deliver David this side of heaven or by, through death, by, by death or by life, David would have been delivered. And it would have been a strong testimony. Uh, Romans chapter number 8 
Uh, Paul writes, if God be for us, who can be against us? And David is at a place in his life at this point where he had already experienced what faith in God during seeming impossible circumstances could accomplish. He'd already fought Goliath. I mean, think about this. A shepherd boy, a stone, and a slingshot defeated the mighty man of war. And it didn't only defeat the mighty man of war. It turned to flight and put fear in the hearts of an entire army of the Philistines. You tell me that that's not a miracle of God in anybody's book, in anybody's understanding of the situation. We've read David and Goliath. We've heard the story so many times. It's, it's old hat and it's old news to us. And we maybe even yawn through the story sometimes because we don't realize what God had done. And could you imagine being David after all that had happened to see that, that by just simply trusting God, he had helped him defeat the Goliath, the, the, the man of war, the strong man of war, who had been a man of war from his youth, He had turned to flight and put fear in the hearts of an entire army of the Philistines simply by trusting God to have somebody come and say, you need to flee to the mountain because people are after you. David probably laughed at that and said, why would I do that? Why would I do that? I just need to trust God. He's been my defender all these years. He's taken things that were seemingly impossible, that had no, no solution visible, And he made it turn out to his glory. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could learn that lesson? I know we know it up here oftentimes in our minds. It's not something we don't know. But wouldn't it be wonderful if we could live this way? We would just have absolute trust in God. No matter what the circumstances. Uh, Somebody wrote this. They said, there is no such word as impossible in the language of faith. There is no such word as impossible in the language of faith. In verse number 4, he begins to state his reasons for having such steadfastness and unshakable faith. He starts by saying, The Lord is in His holy temple. I'm thankful that every time we have to find out where our faith is based on, what it's based on, the foundation it's based on, it starts and ends with God. God is the one that is the author and finisher of our faith. He turns to this this concept that the Lord is in His holy temple. God is not taken by surprise. Uh, He reigns supreme. There's nothing that is done in heaven or in earth or even down in hell that God does not have the ability to intervene should He choose to do so. I understand that that we make decisions and God oftentimes allows us to bear the consequences of bad decisions. We are not robots. We're not predetermined beings. I'm not a Calvinist. But there is not one thing in this world that God could not, should He choose to do so, just because He's God. There's not one thing He couldn't intervene in on our behalf. You say, well, I don't know, this is a really impossible thing. Think about this for a minute. Joshua was fighting a battle with the with the Israelite uh, with, uh, the, the Israelite army and Joshua under his leadership were fighting a battle against the Philistines. 
I think it was the Philistines. And they were, they were winning the battle, but the day was getting ready to end. You remember the story? And Joshua said, sun and moon stand still. And what happened? The sun and the moon what? It stood still. Now, think about this for a minute. Now that we know and understand a little bit of science, what it would have taken for the sun and the moon to stand still. Either the earth would have had to quit rotating, in which case everybody would have gone flying. I mean, just that, that stopping force would have caused it. You ever been on a merry-go-round and it stops suddenly and everybody flies off of it? Or he would have had to accelerate all of the stars and all of the sun to rotate in time around the earth. And we look at that as a, as a human and say, how in the world would that have even happened? Because God can do what God chooses to do. We oftentimes think, well, I know God can do what He chooses to do, but boy, this is a big one. Nothing bigger than something like that. Do we limit God in His power? Do we limit God in His ability? It's okay for us to pray by faith. I'm going to stand fast. I'm just going to trust in God. God is in His holy temple. He's not. His hand is not shortened. His strength is not slackened. God is still God. The one who could speak and things come into existence is the God who is our defender if we're upright in heart. He's the one who protects and delivers if we're the righteous. He's the one who loves us and longs to see things in our life that will help us. In verse 4, he says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He's still on the throne. He's, he's not lost His authority. And then he makes this statement. He says, His eyes, behold, His eyelids try the children of men. We read that, and sometimes we think, well, that means that David's saying he'll try these people that are after him. No, no, that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that God will try the children of men. Whether they are righteous or whether they are unrighteous, they are tried. Now think about that for a moment. God often tries you and I, doesn't He? Even the righteous are tried. Have you noticed that? Job said that. Job talked about the fact that when he was tried, he would come forth as gold. References made in Scripture of the trying of God being as a refiner's fire. To weed out the dross in our life. To grow us in our faith and our strength. To draw us closer to Him. To become more dependent upon His strength. And even the righteous are tried. It says, his, even his eyelids. See that verse number 4? Behold, his eyelids try the children of men. God's trying of men is something that is within focus. He's, he's, very, he's very clear on what's happening. There wasn't something happening in David's life that God wasn't aware of. That God wasn't keenly aware of. That God wasn't intimately aware of. And David knew this. The psalmist knew this. Where did this trust, this, this steadfastness in his faith, where did it come from in the face of his own life being threatened? 
It came from a dependence on a God that could see him and knew every circumstance of his life. When we understand this truth from verse number 4, we understand that no matter what the danger is, no matter what the affliction is in our life, it is not hid from God. Just as any one of our actions or thoughts are not hid from God. God is in His holy temple. He's on His throne. He's still ruling and reigning. Verse 5, the Bible says this, The Lord trieth the what? The righteous. There it is. The Lord trieth the righteous. He puts us through trials and afflictions for our perseverance. The trying of our faith, the Bible says, worketh patience. God often brings trials into our life to help us to grow, help us become more of what we should be. The Lord trieth the righteous, notice this, but the wicked and him that loveth violence. Now, he's, he's also tried. We know that from verse number 4. But notice what it says here. The wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul what? Hateth. You know what's, you know what's so wonderful about verse number 5? Even though the righteous are tried and the wicked and those that love violence are tried, one is tried with God's love and one is tried with God's despising their deeds. The Bible says that the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Verse number 6, he says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone in a horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. There are other psalms that David writes where he uh, take, is desperate. He's, he's in desperation. He's like, I don't understand. He said, my feet had just about slipped. When I begin to look and see that the wicked are prospering, and here I am righteous, and I, I'm in travail, and I'm in, uh, I'm in affliction. He said, God, I don't understand those things. He said, I, I was just about gone until I realized their end. The portion of the cup of the wicked is going to be the judging of God. The judging of the righteous is going to bring forth things that are of gold. The refining fire of God. And so the the Christian, the believer, though we don't always enjoy the trials that God brings to us, we ought to be very thankful for them. William Cowper wrote this, He said, trials make the promise sweet. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials bring me to His feet, lay me low, and keep me there. Did I meet no trials here? No chastening, by the way? Might I not with reason fear? I should prove a castaway. Wicked may escape the rod, sunk in earthly vain delight, but the true-born child of God must not, would not, if he might. Well, to rejoice in the working of God in our life, 
whether it be the trying of our faith or our chastening, both bring us nearer to Him. And therefore, we ought to give thanks for them. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but afterward yieldeth the perfect, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We can give thanks for that. Verse number 6, he says, Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, or tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. It's interesting that God doesn't just defend the righteous because He's obligated Himself to do it. God just doesn't come to our defense because it's what He ought to do. Notice what the psalmist says here. For the what? Verse number 7. For the what? The 